Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we explore the latest in blockchain technology and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna. And me, Frederick. In this episode, we sit down with Isaac and Evan from O1 Labs to discuss recursive snarks and their project Coda that's using this construction to make a blockchain. Thank you to POA Network for sponsoring this episode. Ethereum sidechains provide speed, efficiency, and low-cost transactions. The problem here is interoperability. Specifically, how do you move tokens between chains? So POA Network transforms this process, connecting chains with their ERC-20 to ERC-20 token bridge. The token bridge can be set up for any EVM chain, providing near-instant seamless conversion from one ERC token to another. Learn more about this tech at github.com slash POA Network slash token dash bridge. We're going to put the link in our show notes. So thank you again, POA Network, for sponsoring this episode. One last thing, if you'd like to support this podcast, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash zero knowledge or follow us on Twitter at zero knowledge FM. So now here's our interview with Coda. So today we're sitting with Isaac and Evan from Coda. Hey, guys. Hello. Hey, how's it going? And also Frederick. Hi, Frederick. Hello. <laughs> um, so I think to kick this off, we'd love to hear a little bit about you guys. Um, maybe you can start with a quick introduction of who you are and how you got into the space. Hi, I'm Evan. I'm the CEO of O1 Labs, uh, which is the company behind Coda. Uh, my background is mostly in computer science, and I've been, you know, interested in the space for a long time, but it was really last year when Izzy and I started exploring ways of applying zero-knowledge proofs and novel cryptography to cryptocurrency that I really started digging my hands into it. What were you doing before? Um, before, I guess, um, I, I, I guess the main thing I was doing before was... Um, I did a computer science degree at Carnegie Mellon, and then I did a bunch of work in robotics uh, as part of a master's. Um, I researched into actually like task planning, so getting robots to do not just picking something up, but doing multiple steps in a row, uh, which turns out to be a really interesting problem due to the dependencies between these different steps. And then for a while, I was just reading papers and thinking whether to do a PhD or not uh, before deciding maybe I didn't want to do a PhD. and really jumping into this. And what about you, Isaac? So um, I guess uh, I started my professional career um, working as a programmer at a trading firm called Jane Street. So that's where I fell in love with OCaml um, and functional programming. After that, um, I was a PhD student at Berkeley. I was in the math program, but my advisor was in computer science and I was studying cryptography, mostly kind of theoretical multi-party computation stuff. But uh, I was very fortunate to take a class with Alessandro Chiesa, which is how I first got interested in using CK Snarks. And actually, I shared, I shared an office with, with Howard uh, Wu, who you guys had on the podcast. You know, was, <laughs> that was very helpful for uh, you know, learning about LibSnark and stuff, too. So, uh, yeah, so I, I guess that's kind of how, how I got, uh, first started getting involved in the space. Um, you know, Evan and I started working on, uh, on, on Coda about a year and a half ago, maybe a, maybe a little earlier than that, even. Um, and, uh, you know, we've been working on it ever since. So. so let's dig into Coda a little bit, this protocol and this, this project what you, that you've been working on. What's the high-level view of that? At a very high level, uh, Coda is a new cryptocurrency protocol that leverages zero-knowledge proofs to realize a cryptocurrency that has a constant-sized blockchain. So what constant-sized blockchain means is that instead of a blockchain that grows with every transaction that it performs, the blockchain stays the same size, which means that it stays extremely cheap to verify, even um, as the cryptocurrency is used by more people, and it can be used really on any device. It can instantly sync to like you know phones or laptops or even like something like an Internet of Things device or a web browser. Cool. So there's a lot of things to unpack in that, I think, <laughs> and and uh, we'll probably get into a lot of it. But are you just using uh, zero knowledge proofs for 
the compression or for privacy as well? Is it like Zcash but small or is it like Bitcoin but small? It's like Bitcoin but small. Um, yeah. Yeah, I All mean, right. it's, it, it's conceivable that at some point in the future, privacy functionality will be added. But as Evan says, it's like Bitcoin but small now. It's nice that we already have uh, zero knowledge proofs baked into the protocol. It makes it easy potentially in the future to augment it with things like privacy. I think the first thing that we should try to cover here is uh, this property of, of using ZK Snarks. I assume it's ZK Snarks for compression. Um, something that we've talked or I've I've mentioned on the podcast quite a bit before, where you know there's a lot of talk, in, especially in like the stateless client world, of using Snarks to compress a Merkle tree path. And you could use the same thing for a blockchain, of course. Like you could say, here's here's 50 blocks um, and here's a zero knowledge proof that they're all valid. Like, why would I want those 50 blocks if I can assume that they're all valid with just the proof? So is it something to this degree? Yeah, it, exact, exactly. So um, I, I guess like the most generic way to say it is if you have any statement of the form, I know some data such that you know, if you ran some program on that data, it would, it would output something. Uh, you can make a zero-knowledge proof which certifies that fact, uh, which is very small and, and easy to verify. So in particular, as you, exactly as you said, you can make a, a zero-knowledge proof, a ZK-SNARK in our, in our case, that certifies a statement. Uh, I know, you know a long blockchain such that if you were, were to run basically the verification procedure of the blockchain on it, you'd end up with, you know, such and such a database of accounts, um, and with such and such, you know, a, a such and such sort of information for consensus. As far as I can understand, the the purpose of using zk snarks in Coda is less about privacy, and it seems to be much more about efficiency or scalability. Like, is it where does that live? What, or what is the use case for zk snarks in Coda? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, Coda uses zk snarks for scalability. Um, uh, it's 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 exactly solving this problem that with existing blockchain designs, the more people are transacting, the harder and harder verification becomes for the typical user to to the point where you know most people in practice don't verify things at all actually. So we think this is you know a big a big problem, especially as transaction volume ten x's, hundred x's, thousand x's as people actually want to do, um, and and so uh, the use of zk snarks makes it possible to effectively verify the entire blockchain while only downloading a very small amount of data. So I assume that you're not doing something as simplistic as like waiting for 50 blocks and then producing like a new ZK snark of the whole chain every time because that would be impossible eventually. <laughs> so there, you're doing something there to something different, I assume. Yeah, yeah, that, that's right. And this is where this idea of recursive composition comes in. Maybe that was kind of a leading question, but you know, I'll, t I'll take your I'll take your lead. <laughs> um, so right, so there's this uh, very general idea of of proof composition, which in theory it's very useful uh, for getting theoretical constructions uh, with certain properties, but it's also practically useful. Uh, but but let me just say a little bit about the general idea. Usually with a proof system, you know, I, I want to prove to you something, right? Uh, you're over there and. I have some I have some knowledge that I want to I want to share with you or convince you of, and the way that I do it is by doing you know there's some formalized kind of proof that that we engage in. The idea of proof composition is okay. Well, yeah, we can do that. But also, imagine I had some other kind of proof system, you know, another proof system on top of that, and instead of proving to you directly in sort of the bottom proof system, the proof you know proof system one on the bottom and proof system two, let's say, is on the top. Instead of proving to you directly in proof system one, I prove to you in proof system two. Hey, there is a proof in proof system one that had you engaged with me about that proof, it would have convinced you, which is basically as good as just doing the proof in proof system one. So in, in basically, you generate a zero-knowledge proof, and then you generate a zero-knowledge proof of the computation that verifies that proof. Yeah, yeah, yeah well, that, exactly. So well, let's make it a little, a little bit more concrete. So as we said, you know, zero-knowledge proofs, they let you certify computational statements. So we can start with one like um, I, I know I know you you all use the Sudoku example. Personally, I hate this example. So I, it, 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 you can use a different one. <laughs> if it's a, if it's okay, I'll, I'll use a different one. Uh, Go for it. Not that I really have a better one. M mine is going actually going to be very boring. No, maybe I should use the Sudoku example. Okay, I'll use the Sudoku example. <laughs> so 
Um, right. So, uh, as we all know from listening to this podcast, zero knowledge proofs are very useful for proving Sudoku knowledge uh, solutions. So, one thing that I might like to do, I have my very secret Sudoku answer. I, I can prove to you, oh, I know a solution to this Sudoku puzzle. Okay, that's great. And you, you know, I send, I send you that snark, you run it through the snark verifier, it says true, and you really know that I know a solution to that Sudoku puzzle. Okay, that's great. So I, I can tell you, I, know, I can prove to you I know a solution to Sudoku puzzle. Well, instead, something else I could do, you might ask, why would you want to do this? Well, we'll get to that later. Uh, I could do the following. I could prove I know a ZK snark such that if you were to check it against the statement, you know, I know a Sudoku solution, it would verify. So instead of proving to you directly that I know a Sudoku solution, I prove to you that I know a proof that proves that I know a Sudoku solution, which is, nice. you know, which is, which is basically the same thing. But the, the really cool thing about this is it lets you compose proofs together. So uh, let's say, you know, I have two proofs, each of which says, <laughs> here the Sudoku example starts to become a little bit, you know, even more contrived. I have two proofs, each of which says, you know, I know a Sudoku solution, right? Well, you know, I could sort of join those together to prove in, in a single snark. I know two proofs, each of which certifies the existence of some Sudoku solution. So I can prove to you that I know two Sudoku solutions using just one proof instead of two proofs. Is it a little bit like, I mean, as I, this is the, the topic here is recursive composition of ZK snarks. As I've understood it, it's like a proof of a proof of a proof of a proof of a proof that sort of goes down some sort of rabbit hole. Is that wrong? Is it not? It's not exactly a train of proofs. Yeah, so that's that's basically right. Um, actually, the, the way it works in Coda for uh, certain efficiency reasons is it, it's not exactly a train of proofs. It's sort of a train of proofs with these trees dangling off the train. I, I could draw a picture, but you know it's a podcast. So, <laughs> but um, I, you know, I, I guess I want you to imagine, listener, a sequence of sort of a chain with uh, with trees dangling off the chain, and those trees are for efficiency reasons for sort of distributed proof generation that we can talk about later, but. Is it a tree for each block then? Yeah, essentially, yeah. Is that what you've just defined? Is that general recursive snark or recursive construction of snarks, or is that specifically coda? Well, okay, so you know, recursive composition is a really general technique that applies not only for snarks, but for not necessarily for every proof system, but for many classes of proof systems, you, you can do composition. The the neat thing about snarks is it's particularly efficient for snarks. But, you know, this thing that I just described with this, this chain, the exact way that you compose the proofs is, that's up to you. You know, that's your own personal snarkitecture, we call it. <laughs> so um, That's amazing. <laughs> you know, th that particular snarkitecture with like a chain with trees, trees of proofs dangling off of it, that particular uh, pattern of composition, that's something particular to Coda. But um, the technique of recursive composition is something very general. Is Coda the first project that's putting recursive composition together with snarks? Or is that a longstanding um, like academic pursuit? Is that something that other people have tried in the past? So uh, let me give like a little bit of the history. I think the probably the first paper um, kind of uh, handling this idea of, of recursive composition of something which are essentially snarks is Paul Valiant's paper called Incrementally Verifiable Computation or Knowledge Implies Time-Space Efficiency. This is a really fun paper. I recommend people to read it. He has this really funny example in there of like, he starts by giving the so-called human motivation for his problem, which is, suppose humanity, I'm quoting now, suppose humanity needs to construct a very long computation which will, run, which will span super polynomially many generations. Each generation runs the computation until their deaths when they pass on the computational configuration to the next generation. This computation is so important that they also pass on a proof that the current configuration is correct for fear that the following generations, without such a guarantee, might abandon the project. Can this be done? So basically, he asks the question, is it possible to run a computation over thousands and thousands of years uh, in such a way that people can be sure that the computation was run correctly? It's kind of a funny motivation. I don't know. Uh, you know, it, it, it's, 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 it's a, such a bizarre fantasy, really, when you think about it. I mean, no, <laughs> you know, no civilization has ever lasted that long, but okay, may, maybe it could happen. It reminds me of the book, uh, The Three-Body Problem, where it's like one of the oh. things is like they're in a simulation that runs many, many generations and they sort of 
dehydrate the entire population and store themselves and then rehydrate when the sun comes back and things like that. It's, it's interesting. And they also describe <laughs> how you build a computer out of people. Yeah, so uh, I, I guess that's basically the first paper. And then there's this paper um, uh, called Recursive Composition and Bootstrapping for SNARKs and Proof Carrying Data, which is Bitansky, Kennedy, Chiesa, and Tromer, which is re really talking, I guess, about... Uh, you know, it's 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 beginning to sort of make it more practical, more more realistic. Um, talking about recursive composition specifically in the comp context of of snarks, and then there's this 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 paper after that called scalable zero knowledge via cycles of elliptic curves that adds even more techniques for making uh, recursive composition really practical, and that's like from 2014. I guess you know there there has been some academic work, re really relatively small amount. Coda is, is the first project that's uh, trying to make recursive composition really practical for practical problems. Cool. Um, I was, somebody also mentioned the, and I don't know if I'm going to say this correctly, it's like tiny RAM. Is this a, is this related to what you guys are doing? I, I mean, in, in some way. So uh, tiny RAM is this virtual machine that, uh, that I, I believe was designed with the explicit purpose of, um, you know, being, having its execution certified by uh, SNARKs. Um, not necessarily recursively composed snarks, but just sort of snarks in general. But we don't use tiny RAM in any way. But and, um, yeah, an interesting thing. I think if if you Google around on zero knowledge proofs and snarks and things in general, tiny RAM eventually pops up, and you kind of see this uh, thing being talked about. And yeah, like you can express any computation and run any program in this VM, and you automatically get the proof. But then at the end of every presentation, it's, it's like, but you need, you know, two terabytes of RAM and uh, it's going to take you four years to run any reasonable program. <laughs> right. But so I'm, I'm curious uh, about, you have this recursive composition structure. When it comes to how it's applied to a blockchain, can we walk through sort of, you have the Genesis block, you execute that block, uh, verify it, then generate a proof to say this block is accurate. Then when the next block comes, I assume you execute that, generate a proof that this block is also accurate and that the previous one was accurate. And then you go on in that fashion. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. So um, basically, uh, at any given time in Coda, there's this single proof which says there is a blockchain of length such and such, and with you know last block timestamp being such and such, um, and so a little bit more information for consensus, such that you know if you were to read all that whole blockchain, uh, all the transactions in it are correct, and the Merkle root of the database of accounts would be H. Um, and then when a new block is generated, you essentially incrementally update this old proof by recursively composing it with the new block. So now you want to prove there's a blockchain of length n plus one uh, with state you know s prime or whatever. Basically, you say, okay, first I have this old proof. It said there's a blockchain of length n with state s. And I have a block which, if you applied it to the blockchain which is in state s, you would get a blockchain in state s prime. And then you obtain you know, your new proof and, and you, you, you shog on. There, there is a question of like, oh, you know, th that's actually very interesting. That, that's like, you know, but it takes a long time for, to, to yeah. generate snarks. Like, like, how do you actually have high throughput while having snarks? Yeah, there's, a, there's a big efficiency question there of how yeah. we do that. Just be, maybe before we go into efficiency, I just have a few more questions about this. So I'm just trying to be clear on the object that's actually minimized by the snark. Is it the blockchain or is it the state? Or is it like, what, is it the change? What it, What's being actually, I don't think snarkify is a word, but. <laughs> yeah. We say snarkified all the time, by the way. Okay, so I, cool. I mean, I, I think as, definitely as far as anyone who's working on Coda is concerned, snarkify is definitely a word. Yeah, so, so essentially what, what gets compressed or what gets snarkified is the entire history of the blockchain. So people who are proposing blocks, they have the current state, they have the current database of accounts. Um, what, they, what they don't have is, is the history, the sequence of blocks which resulted in that state. They just have a proof in place of that. You know, normally the way that you're, you sync with a, with a, with a cryptocurrency, with a, let's say with a blockchain protocol in general, um, is you download the whole blockchain, right? You download the history, the whole sequence of blocks. Um, and then from that, you know, then you go through that, you execute um, all, the, all the transactions, you verify the signatures, and, and you're convinced of the current state. In Coda, 
you, you just get the current state and this proof. And if you're a typical end user who doesn't need the whole state, you just download the parts of the state that you care about along with this proof. So, but it's a, I assume it's a proof of work blockchain, right? Or what, what is the consensus algorithm? So recursive snarks in general are kind of generic over your choice of consensus mechanism. We're going with a proof of stake consensus mechanism for Coda. Okay. Oh, cool. But then how do you prove that? Like, I'm, I'm trying to think of a fork choice rule where it's like, if you have two snarks that both prove two valid chains, how do you choose which one is the correct one to go by? So I'll, I'll keep this example, I guess, to proof of work because it's fairly clean for that. Um, yeah. So, so far we have this snark that's verifying all these transactions and making sure the Merkle root of the database is correct. We can also use that snark to make sure that the consensus information has been computed correctly. So, for example, let's say that you have, you know, a proof of some blockchain state and you have a new block you want to add onto that. The snark can prove that both that the uh, previous strength of that previous blockchain was correct and that if you add on the new uh, block, given its target difficulty, the strength of the new blockchain has been computed correctly as well. But but they're both computed correctly. It's a matter of comparing which one is the largest. Right. So now so now that so if you have these um, two blockchains, each let's say you have like a you know two different blockchains to choose between. You're wondering which one is stronger. If you look at them, you can look at their proof of work strength, and you can see that both of their strengths were computed correctly, which means you can just directly compare them and take the one that was actually stronger. Okay. So it's sort of uh, because you have that extra metadata around the, the snark as well at the sort of tip of the chain, yep. you can you can just compare those and trust that the numbers are correct. Yeah, 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 exactly. exactly. So like the snark uh, is certifying not only that you're applying transactions to the database correctly, but also that you're updating this consensus metadata correctly. All right. So you just used the example of proof of work, but instead you've used proof of stake. I understood you just used it for simplicity's sake. Um, are there any other changes that happen if you're using proof of stake? So sort of. So the actual, you know, metric on which you define, you know, which one of two blockchains is stronger is a little bit different. Um, it includes, you know, both like the uh, basically basically the lengths of those two competing chains. Um, the trick is that you have to verify a little bit more information because you have to verify that stakeholders out of one, you know, a block actually, you know, have the blockchain at that time was in such a state and they had a, like their stake was correct such that they were the ones who actually won that block. That's to keep things very simplistic, but um, just as how in proof of work, you can check the sums of all of these different uh, difficulties. In proof of stake, you can check that people who won slots, who won created blocks, actually are valid winners of those blocks. And you can calculate the length is correct from that and choose whichever one has the longer length. Yeah, so at the end of this compression, like you said, you compress the, the blockchain itself. Essentially, you've removed history, which is something that all blockchains want to do, without sacrificing uh, the security of being able to check that the history is correct. But then you still have to deal with the state database. How do you sync and, and pass that around? Because normally in, in like a Bitcoin or Ethereum blockchain, you pass the blocks around and you get to the state by executing those blocks. So maybe it's worth, I guess, speaking a little bit about the database model in Coda. So in Coda, we use an account-based system. So that Merkle root we mentioned um, that, you know, the snark is verifying, that's a Merkle root of all the account uh, data. So if you have that Merkle root and you have all the leaves of that Merkle tree, you effectively have all the information you need. So when you're joining the chain... Well, you don't have the accounts. Ah, yeah, so, so that, that's the information you need. Uh, the accounts are the things of the leaves. So if you're joining the, um, you know, if you're joining Coda for the first time, I guess there's maybe two primary cases you might fall into. The first is that you're just a regular node, you're a participant, you do not need the full state. In that case, once you get the Merkle root, then all you need to do is ask someone for a Merkle path down to your particular account you care about. And that's all you need to verify the value in that account. The other case is if yeah. you're a node that wants the full state, like let's say if you're a consensus node where it's actually required you have the full state. In that case, you have to you know, synchronize with the network and you have to download all the accounts. That's still way smaller though than downloading the whole blockchain. And so that, that's equivalent, as far as I understand, to 
the Ethereum model where the first thing you describe is a light client and the second is a full node. Basically, um, but in Coda, they're both full nodes. Well, you don't. Well, it depends on what you mean by full node. I mean, a full node in Ethereum is something that has the whole state. I, I see. Yeah, they're both fully. We, you could say they're both fully verifying nodes. Yeah. Yeah, and so that that's the definite that's the terminology difference between a Bitcoin light client or a light node, where they say it's sort of not fully verifying. Uh, an Ethereum light client is fully verifying. It just doesn't have the full state database. Mm. Uh, it downloads all the headers and verifies everything along the way, requests Merkle proofs exactly like you say for the, the state requests. Oh, well, I mean, in the case of Ethereum or something, it's such a light client isn't really fully verifying, though, in the sense that it's not executing any transactions. No, but it's verifying the... The, the proofs of work. Yeah, so, I mean, it could be fooled into following a branch that has invalid transactions if it was mined enough. We've talked a bunch of times about like the state database, the blockchain, and then the state ba- what was it? The state database history, like the various snapshots. That's no different in this, correct? This is like you're not recording every state snapshot and snarkifying that. Well, I mean that's in the 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 proof the, of the state snapshot is the Merkle roots, and that's part of the snark. Yes. So technically, yes. If we, I, oh, wait, yeah. I, I guess, Anna, could you say like a little bit more what exactly you mean? So what I'm trying to say is like, okay, so as I've understood it, you have the blockchain with the history, and then you have the state database. But if changes have been made from one state to another, you wouldn't actually see that. You'd only see the most recent state. Um. There is, there's these things called, like, I think they're called archival nodes, and it's very rare that it gets used, but sometimes you do have, like, snapshots of previous um, states. And I'm wondering if it's in any way incorporated into your model just because you're able to compress it so fully. Like, do the various snapshots of states exist anywhere? So they only exist if someone decides to store them. Um, most people okay. don't actually need them, but... Uh, we will support such archival nodes if people want to, so you know, have access to such historical data. But you couldn't actually uh, reproduce the snap. Like you couldn't set up an archival node post fact. You would have to have it running from day one. Yes. Ah, and unlike currently, where you could actually recreate state based on history because it's all very visible. With this, you'd have to have been like actually logging state by yeah. state by state. Yeah. Interesting. That was a little bit of an offshoot there, but uh, <laughs> thanks, guys. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> I mean, this model sounds very similar to basically a stateless client where you're um, only dealing with your own state and then proofs of the validity of the chain and, and how things get updated. Um, but in, in the stateless client model, you run into... Um, two problems. One is that it requires a bunch of bandwidth that no one really knows how to pay for. This is the same problem as like Ethereum-like clients, uh, full node incentivization problem. And the second thing is data availability. If you're requesting the state of something, how do you actually know that it's available on the network? If, you know, how do you find it and how do you know it's available? Sure, yeah, I can. Th th those both maybe require a minute, so let's, let's see. Where do we start? Um, let's start with bandwidth, I guess. Um, so, Let's say that we did have infinite bandwidth and uh, you know infinite bandwidth, infinite compute, everything's amazing. Then we could scale code up just arbitrarily to as many transactions per second as we wanted to, um, which would be awesome. Uh, it turns out though that bandwidth is still the limiting factor in an architecture like this. Um, so you know you have to make an assumption around how many you know megabits per second you expect participants to have. And given a few megabits per second per participant, you can still get up to a few thousands of transactions per second. Um, so you yeah. can still do really good. You just can't do, you know, arbitrarily good. Oh, Evan, I think the bandwidth question that Friedrich was talking about was like, how, how do you get? Yeah, how do you get the 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 nodes who are uh, the nodes who are maintaining the whole state to give these Merkle proofs to the uh, nodes who are just verifying? Is that what you're asking about, Friedrich? Yes. Uh, so I think the the thing you just explained is is a good point as well because like that get that's more like the block size question in 
other blockchains, I suppose. Like, how do you actually pass these transactions around? But you have the additional thing of, yeah, how do you actually request the, the state? I, I guess there's just like a, a bunch of different uh, piece of information you would want to request on the network, but there's just a general strategy for, for this, which is just as how in Bitcoin, like you can kind of tell whether a node is behaving honestly or not by its activity on the gossip network. You can do the same thing in Coda and, uh, you know, really any cryptocurrency where some data is expected to be sent around in the network. You can see like whether your neighbors are, you know, behaving in a way where they are sending information around in a way that's expected. And you can use that to kind of decide uh, your communication patterns with them, uh, which provides adequate incentive to, to participate honestly. Well, I mean, it's not so much honesty in my opinion of like, how do you, how to define who to ask? It's more someone that doesn't store the full state themselves are essentially leeches on the network, right? Like they will request things and they have nothing to give back. I mean, unless you build in an incentivization model for those that store the full state, if I keep requesting my balance every time, then the people who store the full state have no incentive to answer that. And even if they are, it requires a lot of bandwidth to keep requesting that that balance rather than like storing the full state myself. So mm. that's the trade-off like that happens in the Ethereum-like client full node model where I trade off disk space for bandwidth, basically. So, so I, I guess to start off with just like kind of the incentivization problem, you can kind of do something similar still to like the uh, question of, you know, requiring people to um, give these paths out to be considered to be participating honestly, because no one really knows who it is requesting the data from them when they request the data. They just know that if the node that the data was requested from knows that they have to return data or else whoever's on the other end is going to consider them to be dishonest in some way. So there's still some property in the whole network of some incentivization around wanting to return Merkle paths when requested. I don't have the calculations like, you know, here right now, but like there's another question too of like figuring out the ratio between, you know, full nodes and non-full nodes, as well as, you know, how much data the, you know, nodes that um, aren't storing the whole database are requesting. Uh, you'd imagine, for example, if there was only one guy who was, you know, doing consensus and had the full database, it would be expensive for him. But if you have a lot of nodes doing that, it's not as bad. Yeah, that, that sort of leads into the second part of that, which is how do you ensure data availability? You need data availability for um, running consensus, like you said. But the problem we run into, like with Ethereum, is uh, the people running consensus don't share that data. So they only participate in the consensus making process. They don't actually respond to like client requests. Um, so then you need to find someone that isn't a consensus node that is willing to share their data. And it gets into this sort of murky waters of like, I'm not actually sure that this will always be available to me. Hmm. So I, I guess just to like clarify, this is the, the question of making sure that when people share an update to the blockchain, they're actually sharing like the full update of the blockchain. You're not just sharing part of it. And that's going to like uh, make everyone confused later when something is missing. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that that's another thing too. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'll, I'll start with that one, I guess then. So I yeah. guess. I mean, it, it's the same, same sort of problem. So I think it would be the same solution. <laughs> So basically, Coda solves this in two ways. Um, the first is something that is at more the consensus layer, and the other one is something actually inside of the snark. Um, so when participants are sharing blocks in the network, other consensus nodes do not consider that those blocks to be valid unless you know the full data, the full transaction data in that block has been included. Otherwise, other consensus nodes will reject those blocks. Um, so assuming the majority of nodes are, you know, following the protocol, then already you have a situation where um, it would not be possible to, you know, pass around a block that has not missing data because no one's going to accept it. Additionally, um, we have a mechanism in Coda where when you produce an update to the blockchain, you have to prove uh, knowledge of a random account or random set of accounts in the updated state database. So because you have to prove a random account in the state database, if something is missing, eventually it'll be found out because eventually you'll be in a situation where someone's random path, they won't have the data at the end of that path. And because it's in the snark, you know that everyone up to the, your current point in the blockchain was able to do that successfully. So people were storing the full state. 
I think that still doesn't address the general sort of um, discoverability problem of finding a node that actually has the full state and is willing to share that uh, posts consensus, mm. essentially. But um, we're already pretty deeply off topic from our ZK Snark general topic here. So uh, I think we should should move on a little bit. And I think, I mean, that problem, it's nothing unique to this structure either. It's something that every blockchain has. I was just curious if it's if it's something that, that you had thought about. And uh, I think in, in at the end of the day, it's about like how many nodes will be storing the full state versus not. And storing the full state in Ethereum is becoming a pain in the ass. But for an accounts-based system that doesn't have smart contracts, that state database will probably never actually be all that big. I, I should mention also, you know, that we have uh, more thoughts on this as well. And uh, maybe people can find me offline later to uh, if they're curious about how we solve this, uh, you know, the bigger picture of solving this as well. So a little while back, you brought up this idea of efficiency. We didn't really dig into that. I'm curious, like, when it comes to creating efficiency or the challenge of efficiency, is it the efficiency of creating the snarks? Like that can be a pretty time intensive or resource intensive process. So how are you guys dealing with that? Yeah, so I, I guess there are a few different aspects to addressing this, uh, the, the problem of efficiency. There is this architectural question, which is how do you architect your system in, su in such a way to deal with the fact that in practice, Snarks are not as fast as you'd want them to be to get the kind of throughput that, that you might want to get. To say a, a little bit more about that, generating a snark proof that corresponds to basically one transaction takes on the order of seconds. If you do recursive composition in a naive way, where you're doing transactions sort of one after the other, your throughput is going to be limited to like, you know, one transaction per several seconds. So clearly that's not going to fly. So what do you do in practice? Well, there's this idea of recursive composition up a tree which is basically, you don't have to recursively compose proofs you know, one after the other. You can do them in, in basically a tree where you know, I have a bunch of transactions. Let's say I have four transactions, and you can think of them as being the leaves of, of some kind of proof tree. What I basically say is I have one snark on top of two of these transactions, which says, I know two transactions you know, such that if you were to execute them, you get from state A to state B. And then you have another snark on top of the, the other two, which says, I know two transactions which get you from, from state B to state D or maybe I should have said A to C and D to E. A, A to C, anyway. <laughs> maybe, maybe, You're skipping I one. I think I'm skipping one. <laughs> anyway, I think people roughly get the picture. Basically, you sort of compress transactions two by two up a tree. And the cool thing here is, it, it's actually kind of like Howard's Dizik thing. I mean, it's a, it's a little different, but the net effect is, is similar, which is that you can snarkify a computation of, of length n um, in time, which is like wall clock time, which is logarithmic in N, if you have enough parallelism. Yeah. The time to snarkify 1024 transactions isn't the time of doing, you know, 1024 snarks serially. It's the time of doing uh, 10, that's because 1024 is 2 to the 10 of these compression layers. It's essentially a map reduce of snarks. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like a map reduce. I saw, I mean, so I saw your talk at ZCon Zero, and you had this nice little graphic that I found very helpful. We obviously, as a podcast, can't really show that, and we can't really describe it either because it's very specific to this. But um, yeah, we'll definitely share that graphic. And I think that if our audience is curious, I think it would be worthwhile for them to check out a little bit of like what you, how you drew that out, because I think it is, it is a lot more clear that way. But thanks for explaining it on audio anyway. I know it's hard. <laughs> You know, in, in that cartoon that I, I drew that you alluded to, you know, it's, it's sort of like a picture of a picture of a picture of a picture. In twos, yeah. I, I can try to explain the, the recursive tree without, um, <laughs> without having access to a whiteboard, but it's more going to be an attempt than a, uh, than a, than a near-known solution. Um, so I guess maybe one way to think about this recursive tree of, Z, of ZK snarks is thinking about like kind of taking a picture. So maybe if you can take a picture of a picture, the first time you take a picture, it's just of one transaction. But then the next time you take a picture, you can take a picture of two other pictures. Take another picture, now you have four pictures. Then you have eight and 16 and 32. So every time you take another picture, you're doubling the number of transactions that you're able to include in a single ZK snark. 
So by only increasing by one more picture, you've doubled the number of transactions. And that lets us get the performance improvements necessary to get a very large number of transactions into a small number of ZK snark pictures. So that, that, that covers a bit of the architectural um, choices made to, to achieve performance. I think there's a bit of like code level optimizations. I'd, I'd like to cover that a little bit too. But um, another thing, I just a random thought is maybe this influenced your choice in consensus algorithm, because if you have a proof of stake consensus algorithm, you don't have a mining race. And so you basically have almost the full block time to produce this proof. So yes, that's that's correct. And that actually like eliminating that variance in uh, block time does help a lot. To get into the full architecture a little bit, it's actually very helpful to kind of decouple the actual block time from when these proofs are produced. So there's a little bit of things happening at the tip that are asynchronous. I think that would be really hard to explain without uh, like a whiteboard. I can try and say something about that because it's I think it's interesting and I think it's an, actually an important contribution of what we've done and so I think people should know about it. This is something that you know really all credit goes to our engineers. Let me call out Brandon and Deepthi in particular who were working on this. There's, uh, as Evan said, that you really want to kind of decouple the consensus from the proof generation as much as possible so that you can have more time to produce the proofs um, than just a single block time. Because, you know, in, in some cases, you, re you really want to make the block time lower. It helps with security in some ways and, and, and so on. So uh, how it actually works is in Coda, there's essentially kind of a, a buffer. What happens is the consensus participants, when they win a block, they have the right to sort of enqueue transactions into this buffer. Now, the, trans the buffer, it actually has a fixed size. They can't enqueue as many transactions as they want. There's also some pending work to be done. So there are some in-progress proof trees that they need to also do some work on to free up space on the queue to enqueue their, their new transactions. And the way that it's actually done, it's really interesting. Any person in the network, doesn't have to be a consensus node, can contribute work to this buffer, this uh, work queue, in exchange for a fee to be paid by them for the, by, the, by the block producer. Sounds similar to the way Ethereum lets miners mine multiple blocks in parallel because there's uncle rewards, there's various like game theoretic economic reasons you might wanna do that. The idea is you verify all the time and then when you produce a block, you have some work done that you can kind of shove into a block and move on. Yeah. Pretty much, yeah. I'm curious on whether or not you use LibSnark or have built something on your own. Right now, we use LibSnark for, uh, for the prover, but uh, it's actually something we're trying to move away from. So let me kind of tell you our whole proof stack as it stands right now. So I guess at the top of, top of it is Snarky, which is our OCaml DSL you know, for running ZK Snarks, basically. I really like it. Uh, it's, uh, it's a much higher level kind of language than using something like LibSnark directly. It's in OCaml, so it integrates really well with the rest of our system already. And you can use the type system to get good guarantees about what your uh, Snark code is supposed to be doing. Sitting below that is LibSnark. So basically, you run your Snarky program, it gets compiled into a big constraint system, and that gets handed off to LibSnark to, to do whatever it needs to do. This this is a similar in idea to something like Socrates. Yeah, yeah. So it's a, it's in terms of the how the pipeline works, it's it's quite similar to Socrates. That said, Snarky is very generic over the back end. And in particular, right now we're actually working on, on a little project to implement the Snark prover on GPU. We're working on that. Uh, we've kind of recently started collaborating with some of the protocol labs people uh, on it as well. And uh, I encourage any people who are interested in uh, implementing the Snark prover on GPU to reach out to us and uh, we can all collaborate. Are you doing that in OCaml as well? So it, it, yeah, it's funny. Um, it's, it's, a bit, it's a mixture of Rust and OCaml. Hmm. Interesting. I was going to ask why OCaml, but then you said you worked for Jane Street, so I think I understand. <laughs> that, that's only the incidental reason. I mean, well, you know, when you ask a religious person why they believe in God, they don't say it's because my parents believed in God. So, you know, I, I guess it's an incidental reason that that person is religious. But, you know, I, I, we use OCaml because it's, I, I think, a really great programming language for building fast and secure systems. I, I was lucky enough to <laughs> have been exposed to it at Jane Street, though. So we want to move on to another topic that I think has... So when doing research for generally for um, recursive snarks, the question of security came up a lot. Now, 
I haven't fully understood why that question comes up. So maybe you guys can help me to understand, like, why, what is the security challenge? I, I think the main thing that you might be talking about is this problem of how deep is, how deep recursion is safe. This is kind of, from the people, from the experts that I've talked to, it seems mostly like a theoretical artifact of how the definition of knowledge extractors phrased. And in, in practice, composing deeply, I, I don't think is an issue. So is the depth uh, referred to the depth of like your tree of this MapReduce structure or of the length of the blockchain? Yeah, it's sort of how many proofs are you composing inside each other? How deeply? So it would be sort of equivalent to the length of the blockchain? Yes, in, in this architecture that I described, yeah. I, something else that I saw was um, the specific curve used to be able to, I guess, efficiently uh, compose is of relatively low security. Yeah, that's right. So the set of curves that's currently in LibSnark, they were not sampled to be at the kind of security level that you would want to use in practice. So we have an, another you know, set of curves that are at a higher security level, and such curves exist. Uh, we've been talking with, with Alessandro about upstreaming the changes that we've made there into LibSnark. Hopefully that happens soon. Is that also part of the plan of moving away from LibSnark is to be able to use these different curves, or is it unrelated? I would say it's basically unrelated. I mean, in terms of moving away from LibSnark, that's that's really just uh, from the point of view of prover efficiency. Got it. The reason we wanted to have you guys on was like the mere mention of recursive snarks get people very excited. And we were like, cool, what is this thing? And you are the people who are from what I understand, like spending the most energy on it and looking closely at this idea. Um, but how far off are you guys or any other group from like using this in the wild? Like, is it is this a project that's still very much in like research phase? Like, has all the logic been figured out, or is this something where you're still? Yeah. Okay. So uh, I encourage anyone interested to go to GitHub.com/slash/CodaProtocol. All of our work is open source. Um, you can you can check it check it out. You can run a Coda node. You know, it, this is something that's running and working in practice. So um, please, you know, download it and run it yourself. Cool. So it's live. It's live. Well, there is a test network. There's not a live main network, let me say it like that. But you're able to create this system and it's functioning as expected. Yes. So it's been implemented. Yes, yes, yes. Cool. Yeah, I think this topic in general is super interesting and especially like you say, Anna, just thinking about thinking about zero knowledge proofs and when you get once you get like into thinking about it and you're like, oh, I could actually produce a zero knowledge proof to do this thing and I don't have to reveal anything. Like I imagine so many more cool things, but then you go that extra depth of like, I should construct a zero knowledge proof to prove this and this other thing. And so like, yeah, it, it's uh, kind of mind bending. And I think you need to have started thinking a little bit about zero knowledge proofs before you can like really get into why composing them and recursing them would be cool. But uh, it's definitely uh, an interesting thing. On a previous episode, we had Zuko on, and we started talking about work that they've been doing on snarks to make those more efficient. Has that impacted at all the setup or the work that you guys are doing? Y yes, actually. So we use an extremely similar construction to what Zcash is using in Sapling for the Peterson hash function. I think oh, that's cool. the main part of their work that we're using. As far as the snark construction itself, we actually use a different snark construction. We use in Zcash, in Sapling, they're using the Groth 16 snark. Um, we're using the Groth Mahler 2017 snark um, because it has an additional security property that we need. So it has had an influence. Um, the other, the, the one other thing that we talked about in that episode was the trusted setup and the ceremony that they had to do and the toxic waste idea. And I'm just I'm imagining this must also impact what you guys are doing. Yeah, totally. So I, I guess as far as trusted setup goes, I think what Zcash has produced is really a trustless setup, especially as far as what they've deployed for Sapling. You know, this is a this is a an MPC with many dozens of participants. Uh, you'd have to be, you know, really some kind of truther to think that someone was was able to corrupt it. And we are planning on uh, reusing to the extent possible the work that Zcash team has done. Uh, for producing their MPC code, I, I think as far as the uh, the setup goes, the the most annoying part of it is is the fact that it's very logistically complicated. Um, so it's hard to do sort of rapid deployments of Snarks. Um, there's a big lead up time, and you have to coordinate all these people. Um, but 
but I think that's I think the main annoyance of the setup is logistical, not security related. Interestingly, uh, Zuko also hates the term trusted setup, and that's why they started talking about toxic waste instead, because it's more descriptive. Um, and the goal is to not produce toxic waste and just have the components flying around, but being sure that they get deleted. Have you guys thought at all about using like Starks or you know other types of zero-knowledge proving systems that don't have this toxic waste? Or the risk of the toxic waste. The toxic waste never gets made, remember. Zuko is very clear on that. I, it's definitely something that we'd be open to considering using in the future when the technology is, is more mature. But uh, right now, you know, especially for doing recursive composition, snarks are, are the way to go. Do you guys have any last things that you want to share? Maybe some resources or places that people can find out a little bit more about the project? Okay, so I think there's a, a, a few good places to look. The first is uh, I would recommend people to check out Coda Protocol on GitHub. All of our code is there. It's open source. Uh, you can play with Snarky. You can play with Coda. And there's you know, some documentation on, on how Coda works and, and, and all that. The second thing is please check out some of our talks. Uh, Anna mentioned the Zcon Zero talk. There have been a few iterations of that talk. There's more clear versions now. Go to our website, codeprotocol.com, to find those. The third thing I would say, join us uh, on Discord. So on Discord, it's Coda Protocol, I believe. Um, or maybe it's called a server or something on Discord. Um, and you can come there, talk to the devs, and uh, ask us questions that you want. But please don't ask us too many questions. <laughs> We're going to add all of those links and the links you mentioned earlier on in the episode to the show notes. Thank you guys very much for coming on the show and talking to us about this super interesting topic. I really think, uh, like I said before, the idea of recursing these uh, or composing these zero-knowledge proofs is a really cool and powerful thing. And I hope we get to see more of this kind of stuff in the future, not not just in the blockchain space and other stuff too. Um, so thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. All right. And to our listeners, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. <laughs>